All right, turn with me if you would in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we read from Matthew chapter 24, the first 14 verses, because it's very much a parallel passage that I wanted to uh, compare and contrast with this morning. Um, Revelation chapter 6, and I'll read the first eight verses. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the living creature say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider, its rider's name was Death. Hades followed him and they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So we're one week away from a celebration of the Advent. And I could not think of a more Christmassy message than the four horses of the apocalypse. And, you know, one of the, the things that uh, is amazing to me, we, we, uh, we preach and we teach expositorily, which means we go from verse to verse, chapter to chapter. One of the amazing blessings of doing that is that God sets the agenda for teaching and preaching. So the Lord wanted me to study this this morning, Jesse to study 1 Kings chapter 8, which is a parallel of this. You might not see it yet, but you will, I promise. All in preparation for our celebration for Christmas. So what do the four horsemen have to do with the celebration of Christmas? Hopefully we'll pull that out this morning as we study um, by way of introduction, um, if you'll go to the first slide, or excuse me, Jesse, the uh, second slide. I want to remind us where we are. Um, no, I had the wrong one. I apologize. That's the one. You were there. Um, we're continuing our examination of the heavenly scene in the throne room. Remember, we talked about that, that it was the control tower. Um, by which everything looked different from God's perspective versus our perspective. And in the last two chapters, in chapters four and five, we've looked at the setting of the throne room. We've looked at the centrality of the sovereignty of God, trying God on the throne. We've looked at the nature of worship in that it's focused on creation and redemption. We looked at the sealed scroll last week and the inadequacy of anyone in all of creation to step up 
and take the scroll and open it. And then the scene shifts to the victorious lion of the tribe of Judah, David's root, who we see pictured as the conquering lamb who was standing yet as it were slain. And he, the lamb, is the key to executing all of redemptive history. And that is the context that brings us to where we are in chapter 6 with the opening of the seven seals. So I just want to remind you where we are in terms of our overall outline for the, the entire book of Revelation. We covered the prologue, which is chapters 1 through 3. And then we're going to see... Um, the first cycle, if you will, from chapter four all the way through chapter eight, as we look at the seven seals. Um, and then, Jesse, if you'll go to the next slide, there, there are six points to this chapter that we'll look at. We're not going to look at all of them this morning. Um, my, my intent is to look at the first four. Um, and before we look at the first eight verses of chapter six, which is the four seals, I want to make some observations that I think will be helpful um, in our understanding of this. Jesse, if you'll go to the next slide. There is a great deal of speculation regarding the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's um, been around that speculation that is, has been around since John wrote the book of Revelation. And the picture that you see on your screen is, is what is called a woodcut, which is an amazing piece of art. I did not know about woodcuts until I studied this and, and looked this up. This was made by Albrecht Durer in 1498. And he, the intent of this wood carving was to take what was left of the raised grain. And as a woodworker, I really appreciate this. You dip this in ink and you're able to make a copy of what you see because the ink is on the raised grain. So it's, it's a picture of incredible artwork, but it, the detail is amazing if you look at that. But it's been, that is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the subject of much speculation. I remember um, one of the most famous movies in the 1980s by the, uh, the great Clint Eastwood. You remember what it was called? It was a Western. Hail Rider, thank you. Um, so, as I said, much has been talked about this, but I, I would venture to say uh, a lot of misspeculation. So, hopefully, we can um, get past that this morning as we study this. I want you to see that the opening of the seals has to be seen in context. That is of which it's presented, meaning from the perspective of the throne room. Chapters four and five set the table for everything we're going to see from hereafter. And it's incredibly important that we understand that. What is the perspective of the throne room? God is on his throne, sovereignly overseeing and ruling all the affairs of life, particularly and especially in the carrying out of his redemptive plan, which we see unrolling in the scroll. The opening of the seals is not intended to disclose the all-encompassing, self-satisfying question for second coming prognosticators. What is that question? 
What's the question that all the prognosticators are, are after? What do they really want to know? When? When? So I read, I read the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 24. And what did the disciples go to Jesus and ask him? Jesus says uh, the temple is going to be destroyed. When was that done, by the way? AD 70, right? That was fulfilled. But, but the disciples assumed that the ending of Israel in its form of worship was the end of the world. They asked that question to Jesus. When is the sign of, of these things happening, end of your second coming, and the end of the age? What does Jesus tell them? Read further in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, it's not your business. It's not your business. Verse 36, but according or but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Peter tells us in second Peter chapter three, verse eight, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow concerning or not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. So quick pause there. What is the delay in the return of God? What did Jesus say at the, in verse 14 of Matthew 24? The gospel must be preached where? Unto the, the corners of the earth, and then the end shall come. So while mankind scoffs and mocks God and says, where is the sign of his appearing? Peter says he's not slack in his promise. And we're going to celebrate in a week his first advent, which is what? A fulfillment of his promise. If he kept his first promise concerning the coming of Christ, do you think he'll keep his second one? Absolutely. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening or urging on the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what is Peter telling the church? There's a reason for what we see as a delay. And that delay is out of concern for who? The elect and their belief, their conversion under the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. But then secondly, in terms of all of this coming to an end, what should be the primary concern of the church? What should be our concern? What day is it? When's it going to be? No. What are you supposed to be doing? That's the question. That's the question. What are we supposed to be doing? What manner of people, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness 
and godliness and waiting for and hastening, urging on the coming of the day of God. How many of us have thought in our minds in an honest moment, I hope the Lord doesn't come for a long time because I'm liking what's going on here. We wouldn't say it out loud. The next thing is I want us to see that the four apocalyptic horsemen are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus said, these are the beginning of sorrows. When you see these things, the end is not yet. But these are birth pains. These are um, contractions, if you will. Well, what do contractions tell us? It tells us that there is going to be an arrival soon. What don't contractions tell us? When that's going to be. We just know it's soon, don't we? And that's what scripture is telling us is the birth pains tell us that this is coming soon. What we don't see in scripture, because it's not our business, is what that day will be. Why? Because it would be a distraction. And honestly, let's think about this. If we knew that the Lord was coming on May 19th, 2025, what would we do? I remember um, a, a man in a church that my dad pastored in many, many years ago got caught up in this group of people who were predicting the coming of the Lord. And they were dead set on a date and they were firmly convinced of that date. So his sensible application of that knowledge was, well, I'm going to go buy a new SUV because I'm not going to have to pay for it. Right. See what we would do with such knowledge. We can't be trusted. But the four horsemen is a picture of the beginning of birth pains. And in first John chapter two, the writer of this book of Revelation said, verse 18 of chapter two, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. In Revelation 1.3, John, as he opens up this book, says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep, and who keep what is written in it for what? The time is near. We are in the last days. If you're... Under any question regarding that, the scripture tells us that we are. The last days started, uh, and really, if you look at all of history, they're apocalyptic in a sense. But we can honestly say that the last days commence at the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The apostles believed it, and according to the, the, the inspiration of the Spirit of God is a penned scripture, they said it. So could we trust it? Should we trust it? Should we believe them? There are some that would say, well, it's been over 2,000 years since much of this was written. Surely they were wrong. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I, I believe that we have been in the last days since the Lord Jesus left this earth and said, I will be back soon. So I want you to see this. These events that I just read to you in, in Revelation chapter 6. These horrific, tragic events that have happened throughout human history are harbingers, if you will, a forerunner of what is coming. If, if we read the entire rollout of the seven seals, we'll see that the, that the four horsemen are a picture 
in type and shadow of what comes with the great day of the Lord. They are a warning, if you will. And it brings up an interesting question, which is how should we view tragedy? How should we view awful events that we see unfolding in front of us every day? Whether they be natural disasters, there was a a volcano eruption in Hawaii not too long ago. Remember the church, the, the, the church, the early church, as it was written here to the seven churches, we find that they experienced many natural disasters in their day. But I want to ask this question, how are we to understand suffering? Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 13, because there are some lovingly harsh words from the Savior here. In Luke 13, there were some people that came to Jesus And they presented a couple of scenarios to him as if they're reading from the front page of the Jerusalem Times. Not that there was a Jerusalem Times then. But these are headlines taken out of what was contemporarily happening in the time of Jesus and these people that came to Jesus. Luke 13, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now here is an incredibly gruesome crime. We have Galileans who are murdered by Pilate. And what is Jesus's response to this? Now think about how you would respond to this. We get the question as Christians all the time. Why do bad things happen to good people? All the time, don't we? It's an apologetic issue for, for much of Christendom because the unbelieving constantly want to say, if God is so benevolent, why do bad things happen? Listen to Jesus's response. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way. No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Wow. Look at verse 4. Here's another tragedy. Were those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And listen to Jesus' response to that again. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I will have, and most of you know this, but the fourth fourth funeral to preach in a year. And one of the thoughts that, that pervades my thinking every time I stand up to preach at a funeral And this may sound odd to you, but how merciful God is to have every single person that is at that funeral sitting there to watch that. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But God is merciful to allow us to see tragedy and death befall the world and the culture around us. You think, how, how is that? How can that be? Because Jesus tells us here, our response to what we see that is tragic and awful and gruesome is what? 
not the existential question of why do bad things happen to good people, but why doesn't the tower fall on me? There are none that do good. We're reminded in Romans chapter 3, in verse 9, what then are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. That's the point. Um, R.C. Sproul, when asked that question, said that only happens once. That only happened once, and he volunteered. Suffering is not proportional to goodness. The crowd that came to Jesus assumed that bad things happened to bad people. And what they missed was they were bad people. And Jesus, his loving rebuke to that crowd that came to ask him those questions, is repent. Repent before the tower falls on your head. What would, what would people say if we preach that? Oh, how unloving you are. Are, are you going to accuse the Savior that laid his body as the sacrifice of being unloving. This is, this is love displayed. He cared enough to, to warn those people, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. We don't often look at tragedy through that lens, do we? But look at Job. The crowd assumed that because everything was going good for them and these bad things happened to those other bad people, I'm good with God. That's the great mistake that our culture makes is thinking that because I'm in the prime of my youth and everything's going well for me, my career is going great. I have a bright future in front of me that God is not angry with me because of my sin, that I don't deserve the judgment of God. We should not be asking the question, where was God in those tragedies? Or why did God allow that? But rather, why haven't I had a tower fall on my head? Unless we repent, the tower of God's judgment is coming. I want you to see that the four, four horsemen are a reminder both of the coming justice of God and his mercy. These these things that we'll see with the four horsemen are a picture of the great day of judgment, which is seal six. We will see that um, in a couple of weeks. So these are gracious reminders. God is doing two things. He's both judging sinful humanity and he is graciously reminding those who remain alive, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in the four horsemen, we will see both God's justice and his mercy, his forbearance, because God is forbearing the great judgment until all of the usward, as Peter said, come to repentance. That is what is holding back the great day of the Lord. Romans 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. This is on the heels of Romans chapter 1 where we see the language, one of the most frightening statements in all of scripture, God gave them up. Is there anything more terrifying than those words? 
God gave them up. He gave them over. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God simply because it hasn't happened yet? Or do you presume that on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, listen, that the good, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So I want you to see this. Every tragedy, every natural disaster, every atrocity, every death that we witness by those here present, those of us alive, is itself an act of mercy. Because every one of us deserve to die and be eternally punished. So that's not hardly a Christmas message. Oh, but it is. Because if it were not for the Savior who took on flesh, we would be looking right down the barrel of God's judgment coming at us. So Matthew 24 is a bit of a parallel passage. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's exactly what John is saying in the vision as he's opening the seals. I want you to see something else. There is a repeated pattern between the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. It was popular about 10 or 15 years ago when you'd go to a wedding that you would get a, and I don't know, it's been a while since I've been to a wedding, that you get a like a throwaway camera, and the bride and the groom would ask you to take pictures and then give them that camera. Well, what was the intent of that? Well, everybody's at one event but they're taking different perspectives of that same event. What I want you to understand is these are not new events that are unfolding as we see the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. They are different perspectives of the same thing. Okay? So we'll see that as we study this, it'll become evident. So the first seal. We see a white horse, um, verses one through two. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. I want you to see, first of all, who is sovereign over the scroll? It's the lamb. The unraveling of the decrees of God in redemptive history he is conquered via the cross and the empty tomb, and he is worthy to open the scrolls, and so he does. We see the beginning of the opening, the unraveling of the scroll to reveal what God has eternally decreed in that scroll. Remember, it's filled front and back. And who is it that issues the warning or the command, if you will, the first of the four living creatures Issues what appears to be an order to John to come and step forward and see. But this is interesting. John has already said in verse one. Now, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. Was John paying attention? Yes. When you typically read this at first glance, the thought is the angel's talking to John. Come. But the word in the Greek, arkal, arkal, means a little something different. It's translated in English to come, but it means to get going, to go. A little bit of a different meaning there when you read that. So what's going on here? 
Uh, we have a few horse people in the crowd. Um, so I would ask Nicole, Nicole, when you slap a horse on its flank, what does it do? You never slapped a horse on its flank. It goes. So those of you that are, that are uh, horse race fans, hopefully you're not betting and drinking mint juleps. But those of you that are horse racing fans, when you see a jockey riding a, a horse, what's he do? He's, he's slapping the horse. Now, they actually passed a law in California, interestingly enough, where it's illegal to, to strike a horse more than six times in a race. But the, 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 um, the, uh, the crop or the whip is, is not designed to hurt the horse. You know what it does? It creates a snap, a pop, and it's supposed to startle the horse into going. What you're seeing here is the seraph saying to the first horse, go. It's a command. Be gone. So as the lamb opens the scroll, the first angel steps up and says, go. It's time. Go. The jockey slaps the horse on the flank and he goes. This is a command from the seraphim to the horse and the rider to unleash its capabilities. And you'll notice as we read down through there, each horse, each rider is granted authority to do what it does. Notice each of the four riders is directed to unleash its capabilities on the earth dwellers. We studied the earth dwellers a while back. What is the difference between the earth dwellers, and heaven dwellers. Yes. So we know the symbolism of a horse, right? God told Israel what? Don't build up great um, armies of horses. Why? Because you'll trust in their strength. There's a picture with horses of great strength. These horses are strong. They have power. And it's interesting that historic commentators, and I say this with all humility, like John Gill, Matthew Henry, they attribute this first rider on a white horse, Christ, and the going forth of the gospel. There's a couple problems with that, though. It doesn't align contextually with the other three horses. You'd have to be making a bit of a leap here. Secondly, I want you to see in Revelation chapter 19, a description of Christ on a white horse. Now, we know the picture of a white horse uh, is, is a picture of what? Royalty, conquering, kingliness, if you will, kingly authority. In Revelation 19, verse 11, then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Who is that? Is there any doubt based on the description? No. So compare the rider of the horse in Revelation 6 to the rider of the horse in Revelation 19. Completely different description, isn't it? One thing that really jumps out at you is how many crowns is the, is the rider in Revelation 6 wearing? 
Did you catch that? He's given a crown. That means he's got some authority. What does Jesus have? On his head are many diadems. It's a different picture. So I am not convinced like Matthew Henry and Gill that this is a picture of Christ. And a friend of Word of Grace Baptist Church, and I've enjoyed his messages immensely on the book of Revelation, Earl Blackburn, um, I think, hits on something very important in this. And that this is a, a picture of deception. Lowly rider on a white horse. What was Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 24 as he addresses his disciples? What's the first thing he says to his disciples? Beware. Don't be deceived. See that you be not deceived. The question always comes up, and we, we need to ask this question over and over. Who is our mediator? There will be many false prophets and false Christs. What are they trying to achieve? They want you to believe that they are the mediator. That's ultimately what they want. First horse is directly associated with the other three. The number of crowns also is makes this, I think, safely um, to argue that this is not the person of Christ and the going forth of the gospel. That's addressed elsewhere. The white horse and the rider has an agenda to conquer. He's on a military conquest. And I think that this is a picture of war or conquest. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, and you will hear of what? Wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But we're not left to completely speculate about this. And that's one of the problems we get into with the book of Revelation is it can become a guessing game. What do we do? Anywhere scripture interprets scripture, we fall back to that. So go to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. There is a similar vision that Zechariah has to that of John's in John chapter 6. In Zechariah 6, verse 1, he says, Again, I lifted up my eyes, and behold, four chariots come out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven. Mark, you have NSAB or NASB, right? Can you read that verse, verse five of Zechariah six? I caught you in mid sword drill, sir. Now, in the ESV, it says these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. I want you to hold your finger right there because if you're if you're thinking capture on this morning, that might have struck a chord with you. You've heard that elsewhere. Verse six, the chariot with the black horses goes towards toward the north country. The white ones go after them. The dappled ones go to the south country. When the strong horses come out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. Remember, who's talking to the horses? The angel here. 
So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, these who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. I want you to look at Job chapter one, Job chapter one. And I want to I want to make the argument. I will not be dogmatic in this, but I want to make the argument. That these horses and riders are symbolic of spiritual power or what we would call spiritual wickedness in high places. And we find we will find the same allowance or granting of authority to exercise power in a limited fashion in Job chapter one. Turn there with me. Verse six. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to do what? Present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. He was patrolling. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Isn't that the work of the accuser, of the brethren? Lord, if you weren't protecting him, he would curse you. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, listen to this. All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Is God releasing Satan to do what Satan does with limitation? We see him trying his servant Job in this manner. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I want you to see this. Look at what happens. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. I want you to see something. Scripture doesn't tell us how these things come to happen. But we find there's a direct correlation that scripture makes with the happenings and the circumstances of tragedy with the trying of Job. Verse 14, and a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped, tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. You talk about bad news in rapid succession. Verse 17. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Amazing tragedy. I want you to see something. This, this paints a very vivid picture. What was Satan's intent with Job? What was his intent did he have Job's best in mind? No. But who did? God. 
we find is as the account of Job is played out, God restores him. The rider on the white horse had a bow and one crown. There is uh, one of the commentators noted, and I think it's interesting that, that, that uh, this was a picture of the Parthians who were noted mounted archers, possible. Um, there was, in the context of John's time as he wrote this, there was an ongoing war with Rome and the Parthian Empire from 54 BC to 217 AD. There may be something to that, but the point of the white horse is that God uses even wicked men in their political agendas to exercise judgment. In his judgment, he gives them over. Now you say, that's absurd. Well, when we studied through the book of Judges, what, is the, what was the, um, the claim that Israel had come to when we read the book of Judges? Everybody did what? They did what was right in their own eyes. Listen to Judges 2.14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunders who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Who did that? God. Judges 6.1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Judges 10.7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Judges 13.1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 2 Kings 13.3, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. You starting to see a pattern here? Ezra 5.12. But because their fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Romans 1.26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Romans 1 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. You remember Abraham and Sarah coming into a city and Abraham was incredibly jealous and worried about his wife being stolen. And he said, tell the king Abimelech, it's Sarah, that you are my, my sister, not my wife. And you remember what happens? Abimelech sees her. She's obviously a beautiful woman. He sees her and says, I'm going to marry that girl. And he brings her into his house. And the angel of the Lord, or the Lord, comes to him in a vision at night and says, you touch her, you die. And you remember Abimelech's response? Lord, out of the integrity of my heart, I did this. And you remember God's response to him? I withheld you from sinning. 
one of the principal signs of judgment that we must understand is what God does when he judges is he removes his restraint. That's why I said one of the most horrifying statements that we find in scripture is he gave them up, gave them over. We see it repeated time and time and again. This is a picture of judgment. The white horse is a picture of judgment, but it's temporal in nature. The second horse, and and I, I will make the argument to you guys this morning that the four horsemen have been actively doing their thing, if you will, symbolically. These are symbols. But what the net result of the four horsemen has already been carried out and is being carried out right now. It's already been here. These are not future events that we're looking for is what I'm saying. This is, again, a picture of the unraveling, the revealing of redemptive history. See the second seal opened up, and here's a red horse. He opened the second horse, verse or the second seal, verse three. I heard the second living creature. The living creature is who? The angel. This is a seraphish issuing the order, go. And out came another horse, bright red or fiery. Its, its rider was permitted. See that? Its rider was permitted to do what? Take peace from the earth. Look at what happens when peace is taken from the earth. So the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. We could call this the red horse of division. This is, again, a judgment on sinful man. The rider was granted permission to take peace from the earth. He was given a great sword. The picture of the red horse is very similar to that of the white horse. Men, because of their sin, will fight with each other. You ever have your kids, parents, fight? What does that tell us about them? Sinners. When we have the Lord's Supper, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And one of the warnings that Paul, writing to the Corinthian church about, is they're, they're using the Lord's Supper. Think about this. They're using the Lord's Supper as an example of one-upsmanship against fellow believers. In verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are what? Divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. James 4. Who's James talking to? My brethren, count it all joy. In James 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Spend it on your own passions. Titus 3, verse 10. And as, as for a person who stirs up divisions after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Does division happen in the church? Yes. 
And why does the vision happen in the church? Because we're sinners. We must constantly, as a church body, deal with our own sin. And when we individually fail to deal with our sin, then it raises to another level, doesn't it? Paul says, after you warn them once, you warn them twice, and then what? Church discipline is brought to bear. There's an absence of peace. By the way, just in case you're wondering, when we talk about our Christmas wish being peace on earth, it's not going to happen. This side of the return of Christ, do you realize that? This great utopia of a one-world rule, if you will, one-world government where everybody is happy and at peace with each other is a lie. Why? You would have to eliminate sin to pull that off because there will always be competing factions. Nations will rise against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms. Don't believe it. There will always be war until the return of Christ. The third seal is a black horse. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, go. And I looked and behold, a black horse. I'm waking, I'm trying to wake you guys up. If the apocalyptic four horsemen do not excite you, nothing will. Come and I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. That's interesting. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. A black horse. What did God tell Israel would happen to them when they disobeyed? And we saw it in the prayer of Solomon this morning. Did he mention famine, scarcity, a pair of scales? What are scales used for? Yeah, they're obviously used to weigh things out, correct? You have been um, weighed, balanced, and found wanting. But there is a statement coming from the midst of the four living creatures, from the throne, if you will. And it's this, a quart of wheat for a denarius. This This seems as an odd statement. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So, Doing a little research on this, a quart of wheat amounted to a soldier's rations per day. A quart of wheat is a day's ration. A denarius is a day's pay for a laborer. What does that tell you about the price of food? Now, this is interesting in the context of our um, 8% inflation right now, but what does that tell you about the price of food? It's how do you get ahead in that economic scenario? It's talking about great scarcity. It's talking about great economic challenge. And you say, well, that's because the Fed is implementing bad policy. Well, yeah, they are. But why does great economic scarcity hit? A nation. Why? Judgment. Judgment. We can, look, we can, and I, I, I did plenty of the uh, taxed enough already Tea Party marches um, in the city of Raleigh when we lived down there because we were being overtaxed and bad policy that should be spoken up against. But guess what? It's judgment. 
We think it's politicians that are behind this. No, that's what, that's what this is telling us. Behind all of this is judgment of God on sinful man. Things in the kingdom of God are not what they seem. But notice there is a voice of limitation. Do not harm the oil and the wine. Every one of the scenarios here with each one of these horses has a limitation, doesn't it? God says you can go this far and no further. Should that encourage us? It's frightening when a horse is out of control. Have you ever been on the back of a horse that lost its mind and ran away with you? I've never been on one because it takes a lot of effort for a horse to run away with me. But it's frightening. What what this is telling us is that God is now judging this world in ways that, that the average person is looking right past. They don't see the hand of God in any of this. But God is judging the world now in these circumstances to warn people of the sixth seal, which is coming the great day of the Lord. Wake up when you see a town wiped out by a tornado. Oh, that's that's just so unfortunate. No. How does it happen? Why does it happen? God is warning us, but there's a limitation. Even within those storms, we've all seen the stories. A tornado wipes out a town, but it skips a house. The walls of Jericho fall down, but what? Rahab. Her little sliver of the wall stays standing. What does that tell us? God is absolutely sovereign over his judgment. Absolutely sovereign. Genesis 41 recounts God's sovereignty over famine. What did God do with the great famine of Egypt? We look at those events, and what did he do? We find a little boy sold into slavery in advance of the famine to go to do what? To be the salvation of his own family. Is God sovereign? Yes. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers when they sold him into slavery? What you meant for my evil, God meant for my good. In Psalm 105, 16 through 17, David says this, when he, that is God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. We studied the book of Ruth. The opening verse of the book of Ruth said, quote, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And what happened because of that? A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab. Why? Why? Anybody? Because of famine. What happened? What happened in the land of Moab? Who did Ruth meet? Boaz, who was the grandfather of Jesse, who was the father of David. And we we read the lineage of Jesus' 
ancestry, God used famine. Now you say that's a judgment. Absolutely. But here's what I want you to see. In the midst of God's hand of judgment, he is working his redemptive plan. You see that. You see that. Is it coming out at all? As famine drives this family from Bethlehem into the land of Moab, God has already providentially arranged the meeting of Boaz with Ruth. Second Chronicles 29, verse 9, Jehoshaphat said, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house. Does this sound familiar? We just read this in the prayer of Solomon. And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save us. Jeremiah 14, 12, concerning Judah's sin. God says, though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Horsemen. Here's the fourth seal, verse seven and eight. We're almost done. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And he followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Who has the keys of death and hell? Who is ultimately in the Lord does. But here again is a picture of judgment that is carried out on a fourth of the earth. Again, it's a picture that is limited in its scope. The pale or ashen, sickly green horse is a, is a picture of great sickness <clears throat> that leads to death. One of the travesties of war is the after effects and what it does to a people in sickness after the fact. And it paints a, a very gruesome picture here. Death is riding this horse and hell follows him. And death and hell are given authority over a portion of the earth, that is, the earth dwellers. Death and hell have the sword, they have famine, they have pestilence, and the wild beasts of the earth to kill for them. As we wrap up this morning, I want to read Ezekiel chapter 14. Turn with me there. This is important. I want you to see this. Ezekiel 14, verse 12. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even, listen to this, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. What is he saying? What God is saying is when I send judgment upon a people, a nation who acts faithlessly, lawlessly, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job are in it, interceding for the people, I will not stop my judgment. I will not hold back my judgment. It brings up a very interesting question, which is what will hold back God's judgment? The million-dollar question, if you will, is who is our mediator? If my mediator is Daniel or Job 
or Noah. It's not going to stop the judgment of God. If you're sitting here this morning and you think mom or dad or one of the elders of your church or one of your family members can in some way put in a good word for you. Have you ever heard somebody say that to you? Will you put in a good word for me, for the big guy? They, they have no idea what they're talking about. When God purposes to send his judgment, the only thing stopping it, the only thing stopping his judgment is the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, if I break the supply of bread, verse 15, if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it, Verse 17, if I bring sword upon that land and let a sword pass through the land. Verse 19, if I send a pestilence in that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood. Even if Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would neither deliver son nor daughter. Even the children of Noah, Job, Daniel can't save their own children. God is not a respecter of persons. He says in verse 21 of Ezekiel 14, for thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my, listen to this, my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. Sound familiar? That's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Verse 23 they will console you. That is the remnant that God brings out of this. When they see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it. Question for us this morning is who is our mediator? Who is our mediator? How does this apply to us? Well, I want you to see that, that God is already judging this world. He that believes, believes not is what? Condemned already. This is in part a testimony of the great coming judgment of God, the opening of the sixth seal, which we will see as the last day. Secondly, he is sovereignly working his eternal purposes in all of that. The judgment of the wicked, the redemption of his people. We see this implicitly in, in God raising up Joseph in a famine. And then we see the carrying out of God's judgment on the nation of Egypt and all the plagues and the taking of the firstborn. Thirdly, in, in terms of application, what does this mean to us? We need to ask ourselves, not when is Jesus coming, but am I ready? That's the important question. Don't ask. Don't, don't get into that. It leads us down a rabbit trail that doesn't end well. It's not our business. What is our business is to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. Reminding us of Peter's words that we just read, 2 Peter chapter 8, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? When everything else ceases to matter, when the notifications on Facebook, when the emails that are, that are waiting to be answered are there for my attention, when all of these things steal away my attention, the only thing matters when everything is dissolved is what manner of persons are you? We talked Wednesday night about the increase of lawlessness in our culture and the great concern that we have for our kids. 
And we asked, how do we prepare our families for what is happening and what is coming? And there is an answer. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is the last passage and we'll be done, I promise. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writing to Timothy says this, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Mark it down. I, I have to say this again. Those that are telling you that when things get hard, you're getting raptured out. It's not in here, guys. It's not in here. With all love and deference for those brothers and sisters that believe that, it's not here. It makes for great novels. But it's not in here. What does Paul tell Timothy? In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. What did Jesus tell his disciples? After you hear wars and rumors of wars, you will have tribulation and they will deliver you up to be killed. And Paul continues to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Listen to it. Listen as I read this and see if it sounds familiar. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul says to Timothy, avoid such people. So it sounds like he's reading the headlines of today's events. Humanity as it stands. But look at what he says in verse 14. Considering all of that, that evil men will wax worse and worse, as Jesus says in Matthew 24. What does that mean to us? How does that apply to us? How do we prepare ourselves to live in such, such a broken world? Verse 14, he tells Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing with whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Education is important. We need, to, we need to grow in our knowledge and understanding, but you know what the point of all of it is? And if we don't understand this, we miss it. Here's the point. From a childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Our teaching of our children, our preparation for them. How do we prepare our children to live in this wicked and perverse generation? Paul tells us right here. He says, Timothy, continue in what you have been taught. And what prepares a child to live in this world? Verse 16, continuing the same thought. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me ask you a question. If God is sovereign in every single event, even the increase of ungodliness and wickedness and perversity in our culture, do you think he's left his people without means of preparation? No, 
It's right here. It's right here. We are gathered this morning around the word of God to be challenged by it, to study it, to deepen our understanding of it. What does that do? It equips us to live righteously in a crooked and perverse generation. That is what our kids need. That's what we need. Question as we close this morning is, are we with him or are we against him? What is the name of your mediator? Because if it isn't Jesus, we're not going to be able to stand in that day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this um, very troubling picture. These four horsemen that you give us in your word as a reminder of what are judgments that are being carried out every single day. We're reminded of the fact that we're growing older every single day. Death is coming for each one of us. But your word also says that the second death has no harm on those that are found in Christ. And while our bodies waste away, we are renewed by your spirit every day. We ask that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray if there are any here this morning who do not know you, that are yet in their state of unregenerate uh, deadness, that you will take and make them alive, Lord. That they might take this opportunity as you have presented it and you've declared in your word, you've held back judgment to give space for repentance. And we ask, Lord, that um, you would draw sinners to yourself through the preaching of your word and the gospel. Lord, as we think about the celebration of Christmas, help us to be mindful of the fact that it is not gifts and trees and decorations and all these awesome traditions that we've had in our families for years that are the, the focus of our celebration. But, Father, that you have sent your son who set aside and stepped away from everything that he had, put on human flesh that he might absorb your wrath on our behalf. Help us to celebrate, celebrate Christmas because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.